Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Mira Jacob is the author of Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. By the way, Mira and I co-hosted the Literacy Partners Gala online last year and had the best time ever. And you could probably find that at literacypartners.org. We had so much fun. It was like we'd been friends forever. And we said we had to do a podcast. So then we just did this podcast. Anyway, her graphic memoir, Good Talk, a memoir in conversations, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and longlisted for the Penn Open Book Award. And her novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, was named one of the best books of the year by Kirkus Reviews, The Boston Globe, Goodreads, Bustle, and The Millions. She lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Mira. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your book, Good Talk, a Memoir in Conversations. 
Thanks for having me. Hi. Hi. Mira, we had so much fun. I mean, that's so, an odd way to say it, but we had, when we co-hosted the Literacy Partners Benefit, and now I feel like just so excited to get to interview you about your work. I'm very excited about this too. And it was funny because we had not seen other humans in quite a while. And then we hosted this thing together. And that was like the closest I had gotten to a party. I mean, it was like us alone in a room talking, but I was like... <laughs> basically a cocktail party. Like it was amazing. It was, it was like a cocktail party, like streaming live to like tens of thousands of people. And we were like, yeah, we're just going to have fun here. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So your book is amazing. A graphic novel meets memoir about all sorts of things from your career, growing up, your family, race, your marriage, parenting. I mean, you have like literally every element that you could possibly think of in your life story here that was, and you did it in such an original, unique way. So tell listeners a little about how you came up with the form of this book and, and how just how the whole thing came about. Yeah, of course. Okay. So just to give them a kind of visual, what it looks like when you're kind of reading through the book is I do drawings of myself in various years and all the people in my life in various years, but I stick with one drawn version of us. So it's almost like a paper doll version that travels from page to page and the backgrounds change. There are different photographs that we're situated in. So it looks like the way that it looks is you're always looking at two people talking, but they are looking at you, the viewer, while they're having an intimate conversation. And it is, in fact, a memoir in conversations. My publisher came up with that title, which I have to tell you, the subtitle When they said it's like a memoir in conversations, I lost my mind for a minute because I was like, I didn't write a memoir. And they they Uh. said, they're like, you did. You actually, that is, in fact, this is a memoir. And I started laughing because I think if you told me that I was going to write a memoir, I would not have believed it. And if you had told me even four years before you're going to draw a graphic memoir, I wouldn't have believed it mainly because I didn't really know how to draw. So that was, you know, it was all this big learning curve. So how that happened is it's really the the first chapter really does tell this very specific story. And it was the first thing I drew for this book, which is my son, who was at the time six, was obsessed with Michael Jackson, like deeply obsessed, like he knew all the moves and he had a whole, he had like a glove and the hat and he would just basically Michael Jackson out on demand. And then because he was watching the videos all the time, he started asking me all these questions like, you know, is his skin like my skin and what happened to his other glove? And, you know, is that how people walk on the moon? And then at one point he asked me, is Michael Jackson, because he had all the albums in his room and he's like, is Michael Jackson brown or is he white? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) how do you answer that question? And I said, you know, he's black, so his skin is brown. And then he kind of turned white. And he goes, he turned white? And I said, yeah. And he goes, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he said, am I going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he said, is daddy going to turn white? And I said, daddy's already white. And he goes, but was he always? And it was this terrible parenting moment where you realize you've done the wrong thing, right? Like you set out with the best of intentions. You're like, I'm going to break this down for you. And instead, you basically turn your kid's brain to scrambled eggs. So those questions escalated pretty quickly because that was 2014. And America was hitting a kind of inflection point that I think some of us felt much earlier than others. So a lot of things were 
coming on to our radar. One of them was Ferguson. The protests in Ferguson were going on, and he was asking about that because he had seen, you know, turn off the TV as fast as you can, but a six-year-old's going to soak in some things. And so he, you know, I think at one point he came to me and said, you know, there was a kid named Ferguson, and he was killed because he was brown by a white policeman. And I said, okay, there's, you know, his name was Michael Brown and he was killed in a town called Ferguson. And, you know, trying to kind of, trying to trying to help him A, get the details right, but also like not really wanting to talk about exactly what was happening. Cause what, how do you convey the depth of what's happening and also not terrify a six-year-old? And then, but then he, then those, that naturally led to all these other questions. Like he said, um, you know, at one point he was like, are white people afraid of brown people? And I was sort of like, what do you say to that? And the thing I ended up saying to him, which was kind of unsatisfactory, I guess, um, just in my, in the depths of my soul, um, I said, sometimes. And I said that because I didn't want to lie to him. And because the way that I was brought up, my parents would have never said something like that to me. And it's not entirely because they didn't know it. I think they knew certain things and I think they didn't want me to know certain things. And I think they were also first generation immigrants trying really hard to ignore a lot of things so they could just get by day to day. My parents are from India anyway. And then, and then Z asked, you know, is daddy afraid of us? And I kind of lost my mind, not with him at that moment. With him at that moment, I just said, no, no, no. And then I went, and I put him to bed and I went and sat in the bathroom, which as anyone who lives in New York knows is the only place you can get any privacy. <laughs> and, um, and just sort of shook for a really long time because I think I understood right away that he was going to see and feel things about the world that were going to be very different than a, what his father felt, and somewhat what I felt, though we're definitely more aligned. He is brown-skinned. But also just the feeling of being overwhelmed of how do you say these ugly things that you know are true? How do you give your child enough information to protect him, but not so much that you shatter his confidence in the world? And when he's asking a question like, are white people afraid of brown people? What's the right answer, right? So I drew it. You know, that's that's basically I drew that conversation. Um, and that was the first the way I drew it um, is what you saw in that first chapter, which is I basically drew two little pictures of us. I ran to his room and I got all his Michael Jackson albums and then I put us on top of them with that very intense conversation. And it felt really good to do that. It felt like I was doing something proactive. I, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that you like win the prize for like best parenting coping mechanism, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not talking about the bottles of tequila. I also downed. (laughs) I mean, that's like a, you know, foregone conclusion, but the, the, the drawing (laughs) turning it into this form. um, I mean, it is so hard to know how to process some of these big things and big questions. And, you know, this sort of fear that underlines your whole book of like, am I totally messing up my kid? is just so universal, especially with these incredibly complicated things that are like in the news every second and even like throughout your book the language that Z was getting from the news that you were constantly like I can't believe he's saying this and you have the one funny scene when your friend at the bar was saying something like wow that's what four-year-olds say like what do what do babies learn these days you know because it's all so in your face right now we can't hide it 
Yes. Yeah. And especially, you know, in the years 2016 to 2020, a lot of it was some pretty boldly anti-woman, anti-immigrant, anti-people of color sentiments that were just kind of taken for granted at some point. It's like, this is this is an opinion that should be in the world. Um, and this is, this is a totally normal thing to talk about, how we don't like any of these things. And that was wild, right? Like trying to kind of raise a young brown boy in that, it was just sort of like, wow, how, how are we going to get through this with our skin on and with you understanding that this isn't, this isn't a way that people should really treat each other. Yeah. So true. I also, I found it so interesting the way you had to navigate your relationship with your in-laws in that time as well. And, and how you talk to your son about it. Tell me more about that. So my in-laws in the same time, um, so I, I should also explain, I'm Indian. My parents are from India. I grew up, I was born and raised here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We were the third Indian family to move into the state. This is according to the other two Indian families that were already there. (laughs) So like highly scientific. And then my husband is white, Jewish American. His parents grew up in New York and they also moved to New Mexico. And so we knew each other from, for a very long time Though we never, I don't think we even talked to each other before I was in my 20s. We kind of passed each other in hallways and I could pull him out of a crowd very easily, but I couldn't have told you anything about him other than, I mean, at one point he had like long hippie hair and sort of looked like Jesus and listened to the dead. And I think that's what I knew about him, (laughs) which was really disappointing to punk me. Anyway, I have like an identical person from my high school who that just brought to mind. So kind of wondering what he's up to. But anyway, keep going. (laughs) Put it on on that guy. Yeah. So my husband's parents became in this same moment very pro-Trump and it was really surprising actually it was just totally shocking I'd been in the family at this point you know my husband and I've been together since 2000 and we've been married since 2003 and I'd been through every funeral and hospital visit and bar mitzvah and, and bark mitzvah, which and bark is mitzvah, yes, hilarious. From but, the family dog, yes. You know, we've just been through a lot of stuff. And I think I had this before, you know, sometimes you just have a sort of, if you don't look hard at something, especially an interracial relationship, you can put two very different things in the place of real knowledge. And one is complete doubt that that person knows or understands anything about you. And the other is a kind of faith that they see you and they get you and they have your back. And what I found out in that moment was that my in-laws did not see me or have my back. And it didn't really matter to, you know, explaining to them, like, this is what this is doing to my community, to my family, who you love. This is what it's going to do to your grandson. They kind of felt like our vote is our vote and you shouldn't bring politics into love and... You're making our family life about politics, which is rough, right? It's a rough, I mean, I understand, I understand why they think that. And I understand why their lives have been structured in a way that they're allowed to think that, right? They've never had anything to kind of tell them differently. My husband would argue that their Jewishness tells them quite differently. And they did have another choice and they should have made it. But I can't speak to that. I can only speak to the fact that that's not how it played out with us. Mm. And it was a real rift in our relationship. It was a real heartbreak, honestly. And at the same time, these are people who were 
are such good parents to my husband mm-hmm. and really good grandparents to my son. And so what do you do and how do you hold all those things? And that sort of became the conundrum of like my life and then also the book. Yeah. What were the ramifications of your including all of that in the book? I mean, that's such an interesting question because I guess what I would say is they were both big, uh, meaning my family, instead of me holding all of the pain and discomfort that that caused, which is usually what happens, right? Like it's usually that the person who is in the minority and who is um, processing the real violence of the situation is also, it's just sort of on them to, to do it unless they're, they confront someone in a book in some way is a confrontation. And so I think it was, it was hard in the way that it wasn't like, how do I say this? It wasn't, I think, you know, we had had many reasoned and loving conversations, but at the end of the day, the book is my opinion and the book is my version of what's happening. And I think whenever that happens, the person on the other end feels out of control. I did send them to the book in galley form Um, knowing that if they said, you got this wrong, this isn't what we said, this isn't how it is, this isn't how we feel, I would have to revisit those passages. Mm -hmm. But they didn't say that because I didn't get it wrong. I just told my side of it. And that's that's kind of the worst part of the heartbreak, right? Yeah. Like nothing I wrote was untrue. It's just that painful. I thought maybe them reading it or seeing it like that might have opened up. Oh, no, girl, that's the white fantasy. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. I swear, like, that is always, that is literally, that is, that is always the white fantasy of this. And no, no, it did not happen. And also, I, I will say, like, in the writing of it, I'm sure in the beginning, there was a part of me that also felt like if I just explain this well enough, if you just understand how, how deep the stakes are right now, and everything you're compromising, with this thing that you think is seemingly, you know, your own and and no one else's to to worry about your vote. If I just explain it well enough, you will understand me, which is again like something that I think I do think a lot of brown and black people do. If I just prove my value enough, mm-hmm. you will find me worthy. If I just show you my humanity enough, you will protect it. And that's not really how it plays out very often at all. The problem of racism in America is not a problem of white people not understanding our humanity. It's them choosing to do nothing about it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Wow. That was beautifully said. I feel like so important and so beautiful and so just crystallized and getting to the heart of the most divisive issues facing all of us right now. And again, your use of the word heartbreak feels so right. I mean, it's hard to hear someone's story and not be moved to it or moved to act or whatever. Anyway, beautiful, beautifully said. Sorry for perpetuating the fantasy. I guess I just have to hope. (laughs) Of course. No, and also, like, we're, I mean, honestly, we're hardwired to, we are hardwired to perpetuate that fantasy. Like, everything that you've grown up with perpetuates that fantasy. Me too. Mm -hmm. Everything we've grown up with is built around this idea of white goodness and white saviorism and that, like, ultimately this will happen. This is a thing that does happen and will happen. But that's not really true unless people really decide to dig deep. And they rarely want to because it's painful. Like, I understand that. I don't, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to that. I hate digging deep on things that I know don't show me in a great light. And also that mean that I'm going to have to do like years of work. Who wants to do years of work? No one. (laughs) No one. So it's not that I'm unsympathetic to that at all. And it's not that I'm also not guilty of it myself. I completely am. But it's, but it's still devastating. Well, in your book, you also, I just was particularly struck by your 9-11 scenes because, you know, we're recording this a day before 9-11 and this episode will come out afterwards. But just the scene of you on the sidewalk and talking to your dad and the realization of what was happening and your use of photography and just the way you've told that story, the way you tell all these stories in this unique way is just so moving. And I am like a hundred percent convinced that one of my best friends was standing in the exact same place that you were. And I wish I had, I wish there was some way to like take a video camera because the two of you should have been, you know, maybe you even interacted. I don't know, but she was like right there at the same time. But wow, yeah. But how does it, I mean, having this in the book and now with this anniversary right now, how are you feeling about that? Whew. I mean, so 9-11 was so traumatic for so many different people around the world, right? It was it was deeply traumatic on many levels. For us, for and when I'm talking when I'm saying us this time I'm talking about Indians and South Asians in America, specifically also South Asian Americans, who like me, many of us had grown up understanding that America had a way to sort of slot every other 
every every other race had a place, right? So it's like, are you going to be, you know, are you going to like we're watching what happens to black Americans. Are you going to be treated in that way? Are you going to be treated the way Mexican Americans are treated? Are you going to be treated the way Chinese Americans are treated? And Indians are kind of coming into this country was recent enough at that point. We were just throwing up those of us who had been, you know, kind of born in this country. We were among that first generation, just sort of watching what is our thing going to be? What are they going to think of us? What are they going to decide about us? Right. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that moment was suddenly and very quickly afterward, America decided it was very terrified of faces like ours and that we had done something to the country and that we should be terrorized and kicked out. And what that meant was a lot of our uncles and brothers and aunts and sisters were being, you know, sort of violently attacked and no one was talking about it. And there was also a feeling of like, well, if that's happened, I'm sorry, but look what happened to us. As though we weren't ourselves American, as though we ourselves did not lose our city too. So when I think about it and we're coming up on the 20th anniversary which is so wild. So wild. When I think about it, I think about a the sort of the the sort of end of of anything close to the sort of hopeful naivete about how America would would take us in, or not not you know we were already here, so we're American, but like how America would kind of help us flourish in this country or at least accept us. And then I also just think about what it was like to be a New Yorker, which we which we both know, and and it was just devastating, right? Like. It was so it was so awful to be here and the smell and the sounds and the the terror and the and the fear of of what it meant for everybody but also to me one of the scarier maybe scariest things was how quickly America at large took on this pain and their definition of american was this sort of white harland america and meanwhile that is not our city our city is super complex our city is full of immigrants. Our city is every color and every person on top of each other. And that was the thing that was lost in that moment. That was the place that was wounded. And yet the way that it was spoken about was as though it was an attack on this sort of heartland white American. And it was, that was also really wild to me. Like it made me so angry because I was like, what are you, you're yelling about this stuff about America, but you're, you don't even know the city you're yelling about. Like, this is us. Mm-hmm. We are like this. We are this complex thing, this thing that you no longer have room for, this thing that you're like, that's enough, enough of that, enough of giving those people a chance. That is the city that got hit. That is the heart that broke. So whenever I think about it, I kind of, I have those twin reactions. I don't know. I'm talking a lot. What did you think about it? You <laughs> no, it's okay. No, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I cannot believe it's been 20 years. I can't. I just... I don't know. It just, I can't believe that I'm old enough to have had something happen of such magnitude in my adult life that was actually 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where were you? I was in Boston. I had just started business school at Harvard and I lost my best friend and roommate who I had been, she was my roommate all of college and after college and in New York. And then I left her to go to business school and she worked in the North Tower. So, Yeah. So I was in Boston that day. And then the next morning I woke up and drove back to the city. Oh man. Yeah. I know it was so hard. It was, but you know, then I was trying to find her and actually in your book, I was looking at the papers, you called it 
what did you call it? Something beautiful, like a wall of paper, paper, paper city, paper yeah. city. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my gosh, how crazy would it be if she was one of those posters? But she wasn't. But anyway. Yeah. I tried to, you know, those are that image specifically was built from stock photos, but I actually took care to kind of take off the, the names as much as possible. Cause I didn't want to traumatize somebody who saw the poster of their loved one there. Like this poster lived in my life in a very specific way, but I imagine in somebody else's, it's just an open wound. Unbelievable. Well, back to, you know, the lightness here of the Sorry, everyday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on now? And like, what can we expect from you next? And then also what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Woo. Okay. So right now I'm working on two things. I am working on a television script and that's exciting and fun and weird. It's based on the book and yet I not really, cause I went ahead and fictionalized everything so I could actually not talk about my marriage anymore. <laughs> I think it was a good, good, smart thing to do also because I'm actually just, I, my first book was a novel and I've gone back to writing fiction and I think I'm just much more comfortable writing fiction, to be honest. Okay. There's a lot more freedom in writing fiction. So, yeah, I've started another book, and it is... I'm calling it a mystery, but it's a mystery in the way... You know, like, it's not... No one else would call it a mystery but me, basically. But that's what I'm doing right now. I'm working on that. Wow. That sounds awesome. And advice to writers. Like, any advice to writers? Whatever you want to say. Aspiring authors, aspiring writers, either way. Okay, I'll tell you all what I told my class. So I teach at the new school and at the MFA program in Randolph. And one of the things that I tell my grad students a lot is that when you leave a grad program, it's very easy not to feel like a writer anymore because you're not surrounded by writing, because you're not actively pursuing something. And even if you've got something that you're working on, there are days and sometimes weeks and sometimes months where your manuscript or your sort of your drive fails you. And that's, to me, the most horrifying thing is when I don't feel like a writer anymore. That's, that's a pretty desolate feeling. So really practical advice. If you're in that place and you're listening to this, a really easy way to get yourself back is to start with 20 minutes. And what that means is you set a timer for 20 minutes. You write for those 20 minutes. If you got the 20 minutes done, boom, you're a writer. Go on to the next day. And the way that I do this when I'm falling off is I do it every other day at first, and then I go to every day, and it builds that muscle back up, but it also puts me back in touch with my interior in a way where I'm no longer scared of it. I'm no longer scared of my ability to make sentences of feelings. So that's my advice. So practical. I love that advice. That's good. I'm such a, I'm a Capricorn and I just realized like that was the least sexy, most like, here's how to get it done, folks, advice. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes people need that advice. <laughs> Maybe that was the advice that someone out there really, really needed to hear today. And they just I hope got so. It. I hope so. All right. Too. Okay. Someone out there. Yeah. Someone out there, if you needed that advice, get out, go end this podcast and go sit down and write your 20 minutes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you can dedicate it to Mira. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. I really was moved by your book and found it just incredibly innovative and funny and moving and cool and awesome and pretty much how I felt about you when I got to know you as a person. So there you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.